Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there, I'm your host Simon. What happens here? One of my writers, in this case Chris, thank you Chris, has written me a script. Om Shinrikyo. Yes, I looked it up. I know I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong many times in this video. I'm absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me, certain of that. Thank you also to Jen who edits these pieces afterwards and makes them look beautiful and sound wonderful. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, it also goes out as a podcast. That's why it sounds so nice. At least I hope it does. I'm not flattering myself. I'm flattering Jen, a video editor. Which I suppose, because she helps me make it, is flat. Look, let's just move on. Let's just get on with the episode, because that's what you're all here for. I've never read this before. Did I mention that? If you're new here, that's the format. It's a cold read. Not like what some uh, person who pretends to tell you a future. Which is another, like, cold read can mean you're reading something like sight reading it. But also it means, like, you know, people who, like, pretend to be able to tell your future and stuff. And stuff about you which I hate. Let's go. There was once a man called Harry Mason, a geologist from Western Australia. Mason was an interesting man whose main claim to fame was that he believed a Japanese cult called Om Shinryukyo had been conducting nuclear tests at Banjarwan Station, a massive property about a thousand kilometers northeast of Perth. His theory was that Ohm was working in collusion with the US, Australian, and or Japanese governments for reasons never fully made clear. I can tell you those reasons were probably never made fully clear because they were utterly insane. <laughs> like, this, this isn't a real conspiracy. There are conspiracies which are real. You know, and then it comes out later, oh wow, they were doing that. Like Edward Snowden when he's like, oh my god, they are spying on us all the time. That's intense. This isn't one of those. This is a crazy conspiracy theory. He suggested this cult had also been developing seismic weapons, that evergreen trope of the conspiracy nut universe, and even traveled to the Tesla archive to find evidence of this. For anyone who knows anything about nuclear weapons testing and development, these claims are ludicrous. For a lot of other people, though, it's entirely plausible, and there are a great many of these folks who will painstakingly explain why before moving on to deliver highly detailed explanations of exactly just how a seven-foot reptilian can look like Pope Francis, as I found out to my detriment. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. It's like, w people believe in multiple conspiracy theories. Because if you're like into one conspiracy, it's not like you looked at all the conspiracies and were like, okay, that one makes sense. It's like you're just predisposed in your mind to believe in that stuff, which is why the same person who believes in this will also believe in reptilians and the flat earth and that it's all being orchestrated by a big Jewish conspiracy. Because once you're in, you're in, aren't you? You may as well go full bore. The thing is, as wacky as Mason's theories are, there's something about Ulm which stops you from immediately dismissing them. No, not me. Uh, look, look, look. They're obviously a big... Like, I, I've, I've made videos before and, and we touched on this cult. And it's like, yeah, 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 they were a big deal. They were doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, I, I think the subtitle of this episode is Terror on the Tokyo Subway. So they were like using biological weapons and stuff. But making a biological weapon is something you can do in your basement. Making a nuclear bomb is not. And testing it outside of a thousand kilometers outside of Perth is, is also something that let's just know. Just know. Mason's claims made it all the way to the U.S. Senate's Permanent Standing Committee for Investigations, and the BBC were so convinced they created a documentary feature on them. Anyone who likes lazy journalism and terrible special effects will very much enjoy it. Come on, BBC, you can do better than that. What are our bloody TV licenses paying for? I'm just joking, I don't pay for a TV license. 
Because I don't, relax, relax, I don't live in the UK. And even if I did, allegedly, would I pay for one? I don't know, in my opinion. <laughs> I probably wouldn't because I don't watch television. I'm not, not, not that I'm some book reading snob, I just watch Netflix like any normal human being in 2022. But thanks to Harry Mason, as well as the high profile of the case, there's quite a lot of garbage in the ether, which is a shame as the true story is incredible. To get to the truth, I've relied heavily on transcripts of the US Senate committee hearings, the NHK News Archive, and the sterling research of RAND, CFR, and CNAS, as well as double-checking the chemical warfare information with an old colleague of mine who's a chemical engineer for Australian Special Forces. RAND is an organization. It's like a... Th they they sponsored one of my videos. I can't remember if they did describe themselves as a think tank or something. Or like a... We were doing a video about truth decay with them. And since then, I've been like Biden-Meinhoffing the hell out of them. Like, that's where, you know, you see something and then it keeps prop cro cropping up in your life. For some reason, RAND is all over my life lately and I don't know why. <laughs> This is in addition to eyewitness testimony and primary accounts from interviews with the jailed Ohm Senior Leadership Group. But even though there's going to be a shortage of insane conspiracy theories, the actual criminal conspiracy was literally insane. So we can confidently promise a pretty wild ride nevertheless. I'm looking forward to it. Let's crack on. Armageddon will be indefinitely postponed. It's a hell of a title, Chris. The 20th of March, 1995, is a picture-perfect Tokyo spring day. Sakahara Atsushi, a bright young advertising executive, is heading to the subway to catch his train to work. He gets into a lead carriage and sees an old man sitting next to an empty seat. The old man looks a bit peaky. He also sees a clear liquid leaking onto the floor of the train from a newspaper-wrapped plastic bag, which seems to have a brain ruptured. Sakara-san moves to take the seat next to the old man, but as he steps toward the fluid, he notices other passengers glaring at him disapprovingly. The train <laughs> who gets onto a who gets onto a subway? Uh there's a there's a man who I'm does peaky mean like he looks a bit peaky? Does that mean like suspicious? Like, you know, he looks like he's on drugs or some shit like that? Who's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna sit next to the the man who looks a bit crazy and has a newspaper bag newspaper wrapped plastic bag just leaking fluid onto the ground i'll be like i'm gonna just get out of the next stop and uh, go to the subway car behind me all you need is a strategy the train gets underway and he decides to move to the next carriage instead yes <laughs> man man yes yes you and me are the same he isn't feeling very good for some reason his eyes are sore and irritated and there's a strange smell in the air when he gets the next carriage he looks back and sees the old man's having a seizure when the train stops in the next station, kind people take the old man onto the platform, and Sakahara-san, disturbed by what he's seeing, decides to get off and catch a cab. He's still not feeling great, and he tries to perk himself up by heading to the gym. It doesn't work. As he hits the showers, there seems to be some sort of power outage as the room keeps getting darker. Once he's outside, though, it becomes clear that, unless the sun's also suffering a power outage, the problem is with his eyes. This is confirmed when his work colleagues react in shock to the livid redness of those very same eyes, and they urge him to go to the hospital. It's like, mate, are you okay? And you're like, no, 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 I can't really see. <laughs> to the hospital with you. The nearest hospital is St. Luke's, and Sakahara-san is stunned by what he sees. It was like a war hospital, he told BBC Witness History. Violently ill people sprawl everywhere, some bleeding from the eyes and nose, some having seizures, and 
many unconscious. He's admitted that it's some time before the hospital knows what to treat him for. It's not until their colleagues in Matsumoto, a few hours away, tell him about a mysterious attack which killed seven people in June the previous year that they realize all of these people are victims of a sarin attack and need to be decontaminated and injected with atropine. The total death toll was 13, including the old man Sakahara-san had seen on the train that morning. Wait, so was this man a part of the attack, or did he just happen to sit next to the the, the punctured plastic bag? More than 5,000 people were injured, with many suffering lingering or permanent after-effects. Before long, Japanese police began connecting these dots as well, and began belatedly rounding up members of a religious organization turned cult known as Umshin Rikyo, who had been building chemical plants and publishing hymns about sarin gas as a vehicle for Armageddon. Uh-oh. You know your religion's turned into a cult when your hymns are about sarin, don't you? Watch out for that, guys. If you're like going to what you think is a church, and they're like, and then we release the sarin, just uh, just go out, leave quietly, and go to the police. Okay? Okay? Saving lives. As for Sakahara-san, he was unfit to return to work for many months afterwards and was racked with survivor's guilt, rage, and PTSD. But he was one of the lucky ones. Eventually, his survivor's guilt prompted him to quit his advertising job in pursuit of something more meaningful. As he said himself, the fact of his survival made him feel pressured to do something more worthwhile with his life. He spent five years studying filmmaking in the US before returning to Japan to watch the sentencing of Ashihara Shoko, the leader of the cult, which had changed his life forever in pursuit of some crazy misinterpretation interpretation of the book of revelation as we have said though sakahara atsushi was one of the lucky ones he is a successful filmmaker and has even made a documentary about the current leader of the remnants of om shinrikyo now called aleph but there are dozens of others who didn't survive their brush with the cult and its pursuit of armageddon how is there even a remainder of this cult it'd be like today if there was like what was that jim jones cult like that was it no who was the branch davidians that wasn't jim jones that was David Koresh in the branch. It would be weird if there was like, no, 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 it's cool. Like, it all happened, but there's still branch Davidians around today. Maybe there are. I'd kind of be very surprised, though. Alms theology was a weird grab bag of Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and even World War II era Nazism. Oh, yeah, throw in some Nazism as well. Why not? As one cult member put it, they believed in whatever their leader, Ashahara Shoko, happened to be thinking at the time. He would pick up bits of science fiction, ancient theology, and New Age woo-woo pretty much at random and then synthesize it into an overarching belief system which was part apocalyptic Gnosticism, part Alexandrian self-deification, and all confused with paranoid lunacy. What he most consistently believed, however, was that the Armageddon would take the form of an apocalyptic war between Japan and the USA, and that Ong's people would oversee the reconstruction. And isn't, well, this is getting very confused with sarin attacks on the Tokyo subway, where you're like, well, there wasn't going to be a war, so they're just like, let's just use biological weapons on civilians. You pieces of sh and like many prophets of the apocalypse the world's irritating failure to end meant that they'd have to help armageddon along a bit which was one of the motives for the subway attack but who i hear you asking are these people and how on earth did they become not only able but willing to launch a wmd attack on one of the world's most densely populated cities well that's not a simple answer and it's a question which isn't typically dealt with very well in other reporting on ohm Many people just seem satisfied with an explanation along the lines of crazy cult gonna crazy. <laughs> I mean, it is. I don't want to disagree with you, Chris, but it is often a fairly good explanation. It's like, why did they do this? Because they're crazy. Because they're cr the leader was cults. Someone is crazy and 
you combine that with a really good shaking of charisma and a cult is born you know that's how it works crazy's gonna crazy the cults are made up of people who were once reasonable and actions don't exist in isolation but are the culmination of history as law professor masaki fukuda says the tendency has been to render om in two dimensions as a uniformly scary and murderous death cult but this picture isn't entirely accurate in the beginning Not much is definitively known about Ashihara Shoko's early life, but information we do have speaks to grinding poverty and spiritual crisis. Born in 1955 as Matsumoto Shizo, he was the fourth of seven children of an impoverished family in rural Japan. Afflicted with congenital glaucoma, Shizo was blind in one eye and severely impaired in the other. His eldest brother had been born sightless and had been sent to a boarding school for the blind. In 1961, Shizo went there as well. His father was a tatami maker whose other children joined him in the trade. They lived at a subsistence level, grinding out a precarious existence and understandably not that able to care for their couple of disabled children. There's also the fact that for many Japanese, especially at the time, physical disability in a child was seen as a karmic punishment. Oh, that's that's really, um, what's the word? Enlightened Japan. Well done. And it's possible that was sarcasm. And it's possible that Shizo's parents weren't particularly attached to him or his older brother. Yeah, that's gonna brilliant. So not only are you blind, but there are also your parents hate you because you're blind. Great work, culture. Great work there. Nice one. <laughs> I can already people be like, Simon, don't judge other cultures. Well, when they're uh, ostracating their disabled children because they think it's karmic punishment, I don't really feel bad about judging that. I'm sorry. I just don't. After leaving for boarding school, Chizo never lived with his family again. There are conflicting reports about Chizo's conduct in school. Some accounts describe him as popular and charismatic, and others as a bully prone to violence and extortion. This guy sounds like a charismatic cult leader. popular and it's like yeah you could be all of these things popular and charismatic while being a bully who's prone to violence and extortion if you're charismatic enough you can absolutely get away with those things and people will still like you because that's what charisma is <laughs> when you're a cult leader it's likely that both accounts are true it seems chizo used his magnetic personality as well as the advantages which came with being partially sighted strange statements to build a following for himself among his fellow students and he also turned to abusing this influence quite early on exactly that's kind of what i'm saying he graduated around 1975 and became an acupuncturist and masseuse both traditional occupations for the blind in japan the next year he was fined 150 dollars equivalent for the offense of causing bodily harm or injury which is presumably an occupational hazard when you're manipulating joints and sticking pins in people yeah both of these things like I think people find massage relaxing and all of that stuff, but there's not really any. There's not proven health benefits to that, are there? It's like saunas. People are like, it's good for you. And it's like, there's no evidence to support that. It just feels nice, doesn't it? You just get super hot, you sweat it out, you go, get it out of those toxins. And it's like, that's not a real thing. Stop believing that. People will hit me up in the comments, be like, actually, Simon, I'll point you to this study. And it's like, okay. So there's one not very well done study, but there's also tons of staff saying that no, this isn't true. This isn't true. Someone was telling me about God. What was it? Someone was telling me I had to eat some. There was some. The, the superfoods were real or some shit like that. And I was like, I literally googled it. And, and all of the things from like any source that you should trust. Like, I mean, I don't want to say you should trust the government and stuff like that. But like big sites, university things, being like, no, 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 this isn't a real thing. <laughs> but people love it. People like. I mean, more on you. Go buy your like 
go get your massage and get your acupuncture and stuff if it makes you feel better who am i to judge i wish i believed in that stuff because obviously it'd be nice if i had acupuncture and it's like wow my headache went away so no i just have to have a headache or take some actual drugs it's like religion i wish i believed in religion i really do i wish i believed in an afterlife it'd be awesome i just don't (laughs) In 1977, he moved to Tokyo to attend a preparatory school for the Tokyo University entrance exam, which he failed. During this time, he met Ishii, thanks for the pronunciation guide, Chris, Tomiko, a girl four years his junior, who he married against her parents' wishes. Now that his dreams of attending university were over, he opened the Matsumoto Acupuncture Clinic, which was by all accounts a successful business. Enough people believing in it. While peddling his Chinese remedies to the good people of Chiba Prefecture, Shizo developed an interest in spiritualism and the paranormal. Uh, these things just go together. They, they believe in acupuncture, believes in ghosts. It's just for people who are irrational. The religious landscape in Japan is quite different to that of the West. Firstly, there's only a limited Christian influence. Portuguese missionaries in the 16th century were wildly successful, and for a brief period, Christianity looked like it was becoming one of Japan's major religions. Funnily enough, I'm uh, working on a a long-form episode about the history of Japan for another show that I'm working on, and I was just talking about this literally this morning. What a fun coincidence. It's super interesting. This like the, the Portuguese and how they and how the the colonial star countries like the, uh, and the US as well sailed to Japan and were like, we want to trade with you and opens up the country and all of this stuff. And then it went horribly wrong. <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's not good. It's uh, I think it's a good piece of content that I'm making. I was really enjoying reading it this morning. Some accidents of history, however, led to violent suppression of Christians by Toyotomi, Hideyoshi, and the Tokugawa shogunate. This was what I was talking about this morning, leaving only a few small scattered groups who, being Catholic, languished without the presence of priests. In a tragic irony, probably the largest community of Christians remaining in the 20th century were based around Nagasaki, and these poor unfortunates were decimated by some American Christians in 1945. Savage. Apart from the Christian subtext of the post-war reconstruction, Japan is similar to places like India, where there is an unbroken community of ancient pagan religion. This leads to a religious landscape which is simultaneously more heavily populated, but generally less fervent or fanatic. This is because the old pagan religions tend to be more focused on ritual practice than on the minutiae of what people should or shouldn't believe, and they tend to be more pluralistic, meaning that being part of a religious community in the pagan world doesn't usually come with the condition of exclusivity. I have to say, like, these mature religions that have been around for longer, they're way more chill, aren't they? It's like when you, you know, it's like they're like the old person of religions. You know, it's like, yeah, they used to, you know, get into fights when they were young. They go to the pub. They get into some fisticuffs. And then they get old and they're like, no, that's from my youth. It's nice. I like that. I like these old religions. I don't believe in any of the stuff, but it's nice. This tends to lower the barriers for entry, and unlike Christians, who will rarely even mix across sectarian lines, a fully practicing Shintoist can happily attend Buddhist and Hindu rites without any real sense of contradiction. This is borne out by the statistic that in 1995, the number of people registered to religious organizations in Japan exceeded the whole Japanese population by 70 million, a result of many individuals holding multiple memberships. The other side of this coin, where the elder religions don't tend to be too fussed about what their congregations 
politicians actually believe is shown through the highly secular nature of Japanese society. For the most part, Japanese religion is cheerfully worldly and compartmentalized away from daily life. This is a twin impact of the nature of non-Abrahamic religions in general and the deliberate shift away from the fascist warrior cult which had developed in Japan before World War II. Haven't got there in my Empire of Japan video yet. I'm looking forward to it. That's in the next episode. The point of all this is that Shizo's interest in hardcore religion was unusual, but it existed in an environment where religious devotion was not only permitted, but encouraged, even though the vast majority of the population would never really consider taking the plunge themselves. The particular branch of religion Shizo chose was a relatively new cult called Agonshu. The folks were hardcore Buddhist fundamentalists who advertised in glossies and on television and encouraged their members to commit to a monastic lifestyle and cut off ties with their friends and families. It'd be like they're advertising on the thing that they want to, you know, I can't imagine glossy magazines and television are very present in these monasteries. So they're kind of advertising on the things they want to cut people off from, which I suppose kind of makes sense. But it also does feel a bit contradictory. Additionally, they stressed repeated cash donations. Of course they did. As a means of spiritually cleansing and progressing towards enlightenment. Of course they did. Televangelists will be everywhere. For anyone who knows how Om Shinriku worked, this is going to sound very familiar, and it's probably this model which inspired Om's peculiar fee and membership structures. As well as progressing through the Agonshu levels, Chizo was reading an eclectic mix of Vedic, Buddhist, and New Age texts with a focus on ways to use yoga and meditation to cure illness and acquire powers like levitation and telepathy. So uh, he was reading what I would describe as fiction. It might sound silly or crazy to us, but in the hinterlands of many Eastern and Asian cultures, there exists a sort of willingness to believe these things might actually be possible. Oh, you don't need to go to the hinterlands of Japan to find people who think this is possible. There are plenty of people. I have a family member who uh, really believes that through, like, meditation or all of this stuff, that they'll, you know, they'll be able to, like, commune with the dead. And they believe in all this stuff. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's mildly insane. I guess in a similar way to our willingness to think that some of the stuff we see in action movies could be feasible. <laughs> yeah. Those are called fantasies, Chris. In any case, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to, you know, like, you see James Bond, he's like, bow, bow, and he's got, like, it's, it's awesome. You're like, yeah yeah if i took classes in fighting i could do that it's like no in any case chizu was chugging along happily seeking nirvana by throwing cash at a cult and having multiple children when he was prosecuted in 1982 for violating the drugs cosmetics and medical instruments act he was fined two thousand dollars and briefly imprisoned various reporters gave a variety of reasons for this but it seems that he was basically not properly licensed to sell pharmaceuticals and some of the chinese herbal remedies he was selling weren't permitted in japan either so uh he was a drug dealer? In any event, Shizu is devastated by the incident. Falling foul of the law is a huge stigma in Japan, a country with a 99% conviction rate that's acknowledged the world over as one of the most law-abiding places on the planet. That's got to be scary. If you're arrested and they decide to prosecute you, are like, oh my god, it's over. 99% chance. But then, I guess that's also... It. It's not as simple as, okay, you get arrested, you're going to prison. It's like, well, they got to decide to prosecute and all of this stuff. But when they do go to prosecute... God damn, defense lawyer's got to be a hard job in Japan.
He ceased operating his business and retreated into intensive yoga practice as well as pursuing interests in mystical divination, the human potential movement, and the writings of Nostradamus. Basically, he was pursuing seriously as a fully grown man the kind of reading list you'll find in the journal of a 15-year-old goth. <laughs> so true. In 1984, he decided he wanted a piece of that cult money for himself. Of course he did. Some unverified reports say that he'd fantasized about running a cult since his days at boarding school. He left Agonshu and started his own yoga school called Om no Kai, or Om Incorporated, depending on how you translate the Japanese for club. The demographics of his early adherents were youth and women who worked in white-collar jobs. These latter were attracted because in 1980s Japan, women were largely confined to clerical roles regardless of qualification or abilities, and this population group was a fertile ground for anyone claiming to sell a sense of meaning and significance. By 1985, he was claiming to be a warrior of destiny and making pilgrimages to spiritual sites in India and Japan. He claims an old mystic had told him an apocalypse was coming and that benevolent mountain hermits, Shinzen, in Japanese, would safeguard the legacy of humanity. He claimed to have met the Dalai Lama and been given a special mission and to have been lauded by traditional Buddhists in Tibet and Nepal. It seems that Om was presented with a special stupa at some point, purportedly containing the remains of a reincarnation of the Shukyamuni Buddha as a reward for promoting Buddhism, but if this did occur, it was well after 1985. There's also an apocryphal report that the Dalai Lama, questioned by reporters after the 1995 sarin attack, dimly recalled meeting a strange Japanese man, but as Buddhism is one of Japan's major religions, one assumes he would have met any number of strange Japanese men over the course of his career. What do they call this? It's like, um, is it a creation myth or something like that, where the leader of the cult is like, I know about this, I know about that. They create this like mythos around themselves and their ideas. So you're basically giving people something to believe in beyond themselves, which is apparently incredibly powerful for making a cult intense. Who he met with and where isn't as important as what he was claiming, though, as the evolution of Om has more to do with Chizo's image-making than anything else. One of the big problems with mystical stuff is that it's highly vulnerable to people just making shit up, and it seems there's an inverse proportion between how ludicrous a claim is and how likely the claimant's followers are to believe it. In the earlier iteration of Om, for instance, Chizu was basically setting himself up as Christ the Redeemer, mixed with the Essene Jews, Shiva the Creator and Destroyer, and the Emperor of Japan. And his core of about 35 followers just went with it, partially because they were constantly being told they were kind of a Gnostic elite who would inherit the earth after Armageddon, partly because of Chizo's charismatic leadership, and probably also because of the sheer amount of time they'd invested into learning highly advanced yoga techniques and listening to woo-woo nonsense. Yeah, this is this is one of those things. It's like, well, for, for two, one, if you make up something crazy, and people have like you they've already been led down the path of crazy it's really easy to just to just get them to believe more and more crazy stuff because they're already committed and they're like well i already believe all of this crazy i mean obviously they don't look at it quite like that but you can see how it works and also never underestimate the power of someone who is crazy charismatic because they will just make you believe you know you've you've people you've met charismatic people in your life and like oh my god like there's just something about these people and you're like holy shit <laughs> Like, I like you and I don't know why. <laughs> when I was working with a psychological warfare unit, okie dokie, Chris. <laughs> I love that I just don't really know anything about Chris. Or, like, my writers will just surprise me because, you know, they just send me scripts every now and again, you know? And I'll just, you know, be like, whoa, 
Okie doke. We learned that one of the most powerful types of narrative is the kind that explains the world. The fancy term for this is etiological mythopaeism. Alright, one thing I noticed when going through Olm's tracts and sermons is that almost all of them had this quality, and would therefore have been powerfully pervasive to seekers and acolytes alike. And then there's the sunk cost. When I was 17, my family moved to a different suburb, and I had to find a new gung fu school. I initially thought I'd found a very good one. There were a dozen students, all highly dedicated, and the Shifu was able to teach the secret forms, which was rare in Australia at the time. Before long, I was the Siong, or senior student, and happily training five to seven days a week. Shortly after this, however, Shifu completely and utterly lost his mind. He started to believe he could use chi energy to revive dead animals or win fights without touching the opponents. He insisted everyone read and follow the teachings of Carlos Castaneda, a notorious New Age fraudster, and the lessons went from practical martial arts instruction to Qi Gong, magical gung fu ass nonsense, which isn't good for anything other than memes. But so powerful was the sunk cost fallacy that it was six months before I cut ties with the school, and I imagine that most people who encounter cults have a similar experience. Yes, they do. And while I am surprised and shocked at this, I totally know this. I don't think I'm trying to think if I've ever been in a situation where something has gone on, like I've done something or been a part of something longer than I rationally would. I don't think so, but I could totally see this happening to me. I'd be like, no, 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 it's not that weird. And then someone would be like, bro, take a look at yourself, man. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, my dude, I got to get out of this. And I would hope I had the mental clarity to be like, okay, I got to get out of this because this is weird. But I don't know. Maybe I've been in there forever, and then the next thing you know, you're puncturing a bag full of sarin on the Tokyo subway. Jesus. Anyway, by 1987, Chizo's message of restoring original Buddhism, or making Buddhism great again as a way to survive Armageddon, had grown from a little cult of 35 to about 1,300. Like his first teachers at Agonshu, he used modern marketing methods, establishing a publishing house and renaming it Om Shinrikyo, which means something like New Teachers of the Ultimate Truth. How modest and definitely crazy sounding. If I saw an organization called the New Teachers of Ultimate Truth, I'd be like, you're a weird cult, or at the very least, you believe in some woo-woo nonsense about what's that, what's that, the secret? Where it's like, yeah, you just you just think positive thoughts and positive things will come to you. Now that I can cut that when people talk about the secret and they say that i'm like yeah well of course if you're positive more people are going to be positive towards you obviously because you're giving out like like good vibes and not like spiritual vibes but if you go up to someone and be like whoa what's up man how's it going yeah yeah right they're gonna be like dude what's up whereas if you go to someone it's like hey man jesus what's new with you they're gonna be like oh man i don't know not much of course but when they're like yeah, 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 but visually, like, if you imagine, what do you want? Yeah, I want, I want a Ferrari. Well, dude, just think about Ferraris and it'll come to you. No, motherfucker, go to work. What are you talking about? It's ridiculous nonsense. The ultimate teachers of new truth, but who cares? He also rebranded himself by changing his name. Matsumoto Chizo was a common-sounding name, so he legally changed it to the more aristocratic and mystical-sounding Ashikara Shoku. It's brilliant. It'd be like someone, I don't know, in the UK, like, adding a, adding a surname. Like, double-barreled surnames. Or I feel like Americans, don't you Don't you add, like, what's what's your name? Oh, it's not John Smith. It's uh, Mr. John Smith III Esquire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, Esquire means lawyer in the US, doesn't it? If you're Esquire at the end, does that mean you're a lawyer? Because in the UK, it just means, like, 
it's an I, I think anyone back in the day was a dude you could add it on the end it means like gentleman or some shit i don't even know i'm pretty sure that it doesn't actually have any meaning in the uk but also no one uses it but what am i talking about oh yeah making yourself sound more aristocratic <laughs> i'm simon whistler the <laughs> third i'm not i'm not i'm the my dad wasn't called simon and my granddad wasn't either but you could just throw it on there at the end just be like yeah makes me sound cool <laughs> aristocratic ashihara had been featured in japan's version of the twilight zone as well he claimed to be able to levitate and there was a photo of him floating above a mattress in the lotus position which for most people was about as convincing as those halloween photos where someone dressed as a witch jumps in the air holding a broomstick <laughs> this b-list fame and Ohm's marketing efforts saw the cult grow its numbers astronomically over the next few years this was partly because of Ohm and ashihara's tireless efforts but a few factors in japanese society and culture at the time were also major contributors for many japanese life is an unremitting succession of commercial filial and social duties with very little time for any private leisure <laughs> feels like my life right now with a busy job and two young children <laughs> private leisure ah what exactly is that the pressure to succeed is also very real and am i japanese and minus <laughs> and minor setbacks and reversals which we in the west would shrug off can be devastating for japanese folks who are at all times aspirational that feels like a sweeping statement who are at all aspirational i'm sure there are lazy japanese people are there actually those singing i'm sure surely surely given this there's quite a strong market for alternative lifestyles in japan from fashion subcultures like kawaii to religious cults like ohm and ohm had become quite an impressive operation by 1987 it had a number of communes called lotus villages where people could renounce materialism usually represented as u.s influence and live as a monk or a nun sheltered from a world which was high pressure cruel and demanding there were structured courses where just like in scientology you could pay your way to enlightenment and there was a wealth of strangely feel-good apocalyptic writings and preachings all assuring each practitioner they were specifically chosen to fulfill the highest purpose that of saving and restoring humanity after the collapse of the world by 1988 ohm had a large commune at fujinomiya at the foot of mount fuji and was selling vials of ashara's blood and bathwater like some apocalyptic bell delphine <laughs> This is the OG guy selling his bathwater. Oh, except he. That's so weird. I mean, yeah, no, that's just so weird. Belle Delphine selling her bathwater is weird enough, but this is like a big Japanese dude. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, I don't want to say there are different levels of bathwater selling being weird, but apparently there are. Over the next few years, Ohm would accumulate up to 40,000 followers in six countries, preaching non-violence and Gnostic monasticism, and everything looked like it was coming up roses for our rags-to-riches cult leader. Now let me interrupt today's podcast to tell you about today's fantastic sponsor, which would be Stitch Fix. Shopping for new clothes can be time-consuming and stressful. Oh my god. <laughs> I feel like you're speaking to my soul. I'll go to, like, the shops uh, to buy clothes, and I'll be like, don't like that don't like that don't like that that doesn't fit very well don't really like that it's very confusing and then i started buying my clothes online i'll be like i like that i like that and then they arrive and i'm like it doesn't fit very well and they're like you can send it back and i'm like yeah yeah i'll definitely do that and i never do because i'm a terrible person and then it's two years will go by and i'll be like yeah yeah, yeah i'll definitely wear this at some point this will definitely be okay i'll definitely wear this weird shirt that i accidentally bought at some point in the future and uh, it sits in my drawers for like 
two years and then eventually i become okay with the fact that i can give it to charity and uh, that's the cycle of me buying clothes but not with stitch fix who are basically some would describe them as heroes when it comes to looking good stitch fix has you covered say goodbye to endless browsing and say hello to fresh pics curated for your size and taste shopping for clothes can be daunting Daunting is not the world I, I'd use. I'd say, like, ow, gouging, gougingly horrible. You never know things will fit. Returns are difficult. They're not even that difficult. I just don't do them. And sometimes you don't even know where to start. This season, let Stitch Fix do the hard work. Whatever your style, now more than ever is the time to rock it. But maybe you could just use a little nudge for some new looks. That's where Stitch Fix can help you out. Brilliant. All right, so all you do, you go to Stitch Fix. I'll give you a special link in a second. You knew it was coming. And you set up this thing called a Stitch Fix style profile. It's basically a few questions about what you like to wear, what you don't, and how open you are to uh, trying new styles. (laughs) I'll be like, yeah, okay. And then they'll send me something and I'll be like, no, (laughs) but you can send it back. And speaking of returns, they're easy and they're free. Uh, Basically, Stitch Fix's style experts go to work finding items exclusively for you. All items are handpicked for you. They fit your budget, they fit you, and they fit your style. That's the three Fs. Fit, fit, fit. <laughs> Stitch Fix will send you five pieces to try on at home. You keep what you love and then you send back what you don't. Plus, no subscription. None of that malarkey. Sign up for Stitch Fix and get the season's latest picks for women, men, and kids. Go to stitchfix.com slash casual to get $20 off your first purchase. Stitchfix.com slash casual, $20 off your first purchase. Limited time offer purchase within two days of sign up. <laughs> Did you like how I read that last bit like it was a disclaimer, even though... It's not really. I suppose it is. You've got to purchase within two days of signing. You can do that. It's not hard. And uh, back to the show, yeah? Fear and loathing in Tokyo. While Ulm had been growing in size and profile, many of those first 35 members had been promoted to senior leadership positions and were finding themselves seen by newer members as higher elemental beings sitting under Asahara himself. That's another way to make your cult appealing to people. Be like, yo, yo, yo. Other people will think you're a god. Or at least semi-godlike. Be like, sick. (laughs) Or does that just appeal to insane narcissists like myself? There were, in fact... (laughs) I don't don't really mean that. I don't want to be seen. I'd find that very weird. There were, in fact, at least two levels of enlightenment below him, according to the Pazugo-Nirvana system. Om had in place. Ashihara's wife, Ishii Tomiko, initially showed no interest in the cult, refusing when ordered to join and become a faithful adherent. In response, Ashihara had whipped 50 times with a cane and locked in isolation to meditate for seven weeks. When she reemerged, she was unsurprisingly a willing convert, later saying that Ashihara had set her on the path of self-improvement that she hadn't been willing to initiate herself. Oh my god, really? I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't her fault. She is clearly a victim of insane abuse but also if i was <laughs> i'd like to think if i was in that position like, yeah yeah yeah, no how long was i in there seven weeks okay yeah i'm super into the cult thing where do we go next and then at first moment i'll be like just get the f- out of there run play along and then leave Ishii Tomiko went on to achieve the second highest level of enlightenment in Om, and along with Ashihara's mistress, Ishii Hisako, apparently no relation, they formed part of a group of females who were senior leaders in the cult. 
Sounds like uh, he was also taking advantage of that, doesn't it? In some interpretations of Japanese Zen Buddhism, it is permissible to remove bad karma via the use of force. This includes things like confinement, deprivation of food or water, or in extreme cases, flogging. And to be like, well, we... Sh- <laughs> that, I mean, in prima facie, that seems like an insane statement. You can whip the uh, the badness out of someone, but seeing as they see that, they mention their confinement which is kind of what prison is. It's like, yeah, we're going to confine you, and that'll fix you. No. No. (laughs) No. So as crazy as Ashihara's actions sounds, the torture and false imprisonment of his wife wasn't really that far beyond the pale in terms of running a religious cult. When Om made its first... Yeah, but everything in a religious cult, Chris, is beyond the pale. It's a crazy religious cult where the guy thinks he's a god. Where Om made its first serious venture into criminality was when cult member Maya Teriyuki accidentally drowns while performing ritual exercises. Om at the time was applying for official recognition as a religious organization. They'd been rejected on their first application and were supporting their second by what was basically a campaign of harassment, with members picketing government officials' offices and homes and conducting a sort of pre-internet DDoS attack by spamming the authorities with phone calls. Oh my god, this isn't going to work, is it? Please, no. Ashihara told his inner circle that disclosure might sink their bid for recognition, then bravely left the decision to them. It was Ishii Tomiko, his wife, who suggested that they cover the death up, so they burned the body at their sacrificial altar before Ishii Hisako led a small group who ground up the remaining bones and scattered the ashes over a lake. Well... That is a very thorough way of disposing of a body, isn't it? In Japan, interfering with a body is an exceptionally serious offense, and many researchers pinpoint this moment as the beginning of their slide into violent crime. That's pretty intense. Like, I mean, of course, like, desecrating a body or whatever we call it is, like, a crime. I think. Yeah, it must be, right? But it's not like that. It's not like murder. It's just like, it's more you're a bit of a weirdo rather than a violent criminal. Unless you murdered someone and then need to dispose of the body, which I would guess is probably a more common occurrence. Maima San, the man who drowned, had a best friend named Taguchi Shuyi, who not only witnessed the fatal accident, but was aware of the cover-up. Understandably, he had become disillusioned with Ulm and signaled his intention to leave. No, 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 no. No, we talked about this. Do not signal your intention to leave. Keep doing everything. Everything is fine. Then when you go to Tesco to get some baked beans or whatever the Japanese equivalent of that is, you just wander off. You just wander off, and as soon as you're out of sight, you start f***ing running. Run. And run as fast as you can. Maybe go to a police station, or just hide somewhere. And just go start a new life, okay? That's how you escape from a cult. Don't signal intentions to leave, even if you think it's okay. Anxious he might report the incident to police, Ashihara tied Taguchi-san to a chair and summoned his male senior leaders to consult. He asked them to establish whether Taguchi-san really meant to leave, and incredibly, when they went to ask him, he didn't lie. You should have lied, my friend. As a result, Ashihara ordered them to kill him. They strangled Taguchi-san with a rope and burned the body in much the same way as his friends. Who could have possibly seen this coming? 
Uh, apparently not Taguchi. This division of labor, with the women mostly segregated from the more violent actions, would persist throughout the history of Om. In fact, various security and counterterrorism experts see a strong correlation between the gradual freezing out of female senior leaders and the increasingly erratic and violent behavior of Om's key members. Some experts say Ashihara's wife and mistress led what might be called a moderate faction, acting as a sort of break on the self-proclaimed guru's more extreme flight of fancy, whereas the men in the senior leadership group tended to enable and amplify them. I stress that this is informed speculation at best, but several independent experts have come to the same conclusions, so for what it's worth, I included it here. A key moment for Om was when they were given official status as a religion. Oh no, it worked! No! <laughs> Understandably, investigators found that Tokyo authorities, despite having serious misgivings about the nature and activities of the cult, simply got tired of being harassed and granted official status to get rid of them. That is terrible. This shouldn't be the case. Obviously not. But it sets a terrible precedent. <laughs> There's probably loads of religions in Japan which shouldn't be religions because officials got tired of being harassed. Once recognized, they were practically untouchable. Why? Religions were still highly protected at the time, mostly because of American post-war influence, when the Japanese absorbed an exaggerated version of the First Amendment protections into their own constitutions. Yeah, well, into their own constitution. Religions create, like, the amount of protection. And don't, religions don't have to pay tax in America, right? Which is insane. What are you doing? As a result, and the people are, like, flying around on private jets and shit. So what are you doing, America? As a result, government powers to investigate religions were seriously curtailed, and there was a deep reluctance among Japanese authorities to interfere with religious organizations. Shortly after gaining official status, Ashihara decided to run a series of candidates for the Diet. Oh, it's pronounced Diet. Oh no, I, I just mentioned that whole uh, history video. It's spelt Diet. I was uh, doing this history video about the Empire of Japan. I pronounced it Diet the whole time, but it's Diet. Oh no. Good news. I don't particularly care. Japan's parliament. He believed Japan's problems all boiled down to materialism and consumer culture, for which he blamed America, and that only through a restoration of traditional Buddhism could the country be saved. He also believed America would launch a nuclear attack against Japan, kicking off World War III and Armageddon, and only the spiritually strong and pure Aum practitioners would be saved to rebuild the world. What are you talking about, mate? Also, you're like, yeah, I hate America, except for all that sweet religious stuff that really benefits me. Everybody hates capitalism, except when it butters their bread. It's worth noting here that the end of the world isn't a feature of most Eastern religions, so Ashihara's ideas are pretty unusual. Is the end of the world, like, I know there's like Armageddon and stuff, and the apocalypse, and the six horsemen. Four horsemen? <laughs> it's four horsemen, isn't it? Of the apocalypse and all that stuff. But is it? Is it like... Do people really believe that the world is going to end? I mean, obviously the world's going to end at some really distant point in the future. As, you know, it's been around for a really long time, but of course it's going to end at some point. But do religions believe, like Western religions believe, that this is going to happen, like, relatively soon? I didn't even know that. The election was a whitewash for ARM. They only got 1,783 votes out of 500,000 cast. This was a doubly humiliating number, as there were significantly more than 1,783 ARM members, and it seems even they didn't vote for ARM candidates. It seems the monastic focus of ARM worked against them, with many followers highly unwilling to re-engage with society after joining expressly in order to retreat from it. Another reason for their poor performance was the impact of increased 
increased scrutiny. Arms Party Shinrito Supreme Truth fielded 25 candidates, including Ashihara, and they went on a marketing blitz, holding events and giving performances and interviews. This led to many families coming forward to complain of the cult's bizarre practices, extortionate behavior, and breaking up of families. Yeah, I mean, you can market the hell out of it, but, um, what was it? Michael Bloomberg running against, um, Joe Biden and stuff in the Democratic primaries in that last election. He spent a lot of money. But you can't buy... It'll get you somewhere, but not far enough. Then or now. These families organized themselves into the Aum Shinrikyo Victim Society and hired Sakamoto Tutsumi as their lawyer. Sakamoto-san launched an investigation and the findings were damning. He had these on popular radio shows and the negative publicity proved fatal for Aum's election hopes. Honestly though, with 1,700 votes or whatever out of 500,000 needed, did they ever really have a chance? Even if you'd, you'd have to do a crazy amount more. Uh, 500 times more, basically. Sakamoto's goals were quite moderate. He wasn't the implacable enemy Ohm sought him to be. In public, he stated that he simply wanted Ohm to be a bit less bizarre and stop some of its more harmful practices. Thinking he might be able to persuade them to do this, he agreed to meet with senior Ohm leaders, but the meeting was a complete train wreck. Why, he went there to reason with a cult and they were unreasonable. Again, shocking. After this, Ashihara marked Sakamoto-san down as a key threat, and a handful of armed members held a meeting to plan his assassination. Oh no, they toyed with the idea of using botulinum toxin, more on that later, but instead settled on a syringe of potassium chloride, a drug which causes cardiac arrest, and formulated a plan to ambush him on his way home from work. With typical arm efficiency, the chosen day turned out to be a public holiday, and Sakamoto-san stayed home with his wife and one-year-old son. The armed members decided to ninja their way into the house, but botched it so badly they had to beat the whole family to death. Oh my god. They buried the bodies in different prefectures and reported back to Ashihara, who congratulated them and assured them the family's souls would transmigrate to a better world. Oh my god, this suddenly got super dark. I mean, it was dark already, but they just murdered someone's whole family. Ah! When police investigated the disappearance of the Sakamoto family, they discovered they hadn't been robbed and an Om Shinriku badge was left scene guys don't leave a badge behind bearing the name of your organization at a crime scene are you insane oh god on hearing this ashahara went to a recently established arm office in bonn germany oh my god it got international so he wasn't available to be interviewed by police the follow-up investigations were frankly pathetic and the inquiry simply languished the public however had no doubts about who was guilty and public attacks on arm sealed their fate in the elections this is insane a whole family was murdered police what are you up to you found a badge from the organization at the crime scene and you know he was investigating them How, what, what are you doing police come on this pasting at the ballot box was the turning point for Ashihara. He immediately abandoned all attempts to integrate with traditional Japanese society, and his sermons turned sharply from preaching Japan's salvation to being exclusively concerned with the salvation of Alm's members. In multiple writings, Ashihara claimed the US was targeting Japan with a malign influence campaign, drowning Japanese culture in shallow consumerism. Alm was being targeted, too, by means of airborne chemical attacks designed to render them compliance, a version of the Contrail conspiracy theory. There was also a weird strain of virulent anti-Semitism in Ashihara's teaching. Of course there was! As you mentioned that, you gotta, you gotta throw in all of the conspiracies, and of course it's the Jews! 
obviously. He claimed the world was run by a Zionist shadow government, holding them responsible for such events as the Khmer Rouge massacres and the Serbo-Croat war. Obviously. Yeah, it, it wasn't... The, the Khmer, Khmer Rouge wasn't um, uh, Pol Pot. It was a Jewish conspiracy. <laughs> I love it. It's so crazy. In the special edition of Olm's Monthly Circular, the Varianaha Saka... Oh my god. I've even got a pronunciation guide and I know I'm getting it wrong. Ashahara declared war on Jewish people. On behalf of Earth's 5.5 billion people, Variana Saka hereby formally declares war on the world's shadow government that murders untold numbers of people. For obvious reasons, I couldn't find any Jewish people to persecute in Japan, but Ashahara and his senior leaders created long lists of people he called Japanese Jews, <laughs> the pro-Western, wealthy, and cosmopolitan Japanese. What does this have to do with them being Jewish? You're just taking random conspiracy theories like contrails and shadow governments mashing them together you're truly losing your mind mate the upshot of all of this was that ashahara was able to convince his followers it was necessary to take defensive measures if the u.s was subjugating arm to chemical attack then all need to develop their own cbrm weapons and if japan's government had been captured by a world shadow government all would have to restructure itself in readiness to take over the country for its own good so I actually don't think this guy's lost his mind. I think he's just, you know, he's creating a scapegoat. He's creating, uh, not scapegoat, he's creating an enemy. So he has something to like rally his people behind and make them even more loyal to him. And he's like, it's a good spirit. It's craziness, but it totally works. The Shadow Shogunate. By 1990, Ulm had attracted a core group of young males, many of whom had advanced technical qualifications. One was a virologist, another had been part of the Japanese space program, and there were chemists and other scientific specialists among them. Ulm had began remodeling itself into ministries. There was an intelligence ministry, mostly made up of members with law enforcement or military backgrounds, a construction ministry headed by an engineer, the health ministry was fronted by the virologist, and they even had a household affairs ministry. This last one was based on an identical department which had functioned under the Meiji emperors and dealt with counterintelligence and security. The cult had a string of computer shops, restaurants, and other businesses, all generating tax-free revenue, and even owned and ran a hospital. Wait, 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 are they also... Did they take that from the Americans? This is crazy. <laughs> By 1995, Alm was running two dozen companies, and it's estimated that he had between 40 to 60,000 members and assets totaling a billion dollars. Oh my god, this got huge. This got huge. This is not some Jim Jones, David Koresh nonsense. This is a proper, big, weird cult. I had no, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about this before, I totally forgot how big it is. Their anti-Semitic, anti-American, and anti-government rhetoric wasn't exactly being broadcast, but it wasn't exactly secret either. There were plenty of disaffected ex-members and concerned citizens repeatedly flagging Om's ideas and activities to Japanese authorities, but their status as an officially recognized religion made them hesitant to act. During this period, Om conducted quite a few activities which would grab headlines in the wake of the Tokyo attack. In the end, these weren't the main game, and they were farcically inept, but it's worth listing them to get a sense of just just how nuts their ultimate goals were. I'm surprised at their level of incompetence. That's a lot of people. And you've got like military people, you've got virologists, you've got all of these people who, you know, they're highly qualified. We said they're highly qualified technical people. 
So how are you still so at your job? Their intelligence ministry perpetrated multiple break-ins at the offices of Mitsubishi and other defense contractors to steal documents relating to tanks and laser weapons. There is no indication these efforts were successful. Senior arm members began quickly abandoning projects such as an astral teleporter, a headset designed to broadcast Ashihara's brainwaves, gigantic solar mirrors, and plasma cannons. This guy is like, yeah, go make me a uh, astral teleporter. And all of these technical-minded people will be like, should we tell the boss that that's not a thing? And they'll be, and someone will be like, no, don't tell him it's not a thing. Let's just go work on it quietly before he goes crazy more. So like, how's that astral teleport? It's coming great, boss. Almost there. It'll be ready soon. <laughs> The ideas were inspired by Mobile Suit, Gundam, and other anime. Oh god, they'll be like looking at Star Trek and be like, where's my warp drive? It's the sort of shit you think's possible when you're five. <laughs> Arm also tried to raise its own elite army. Their recruiting program in Russia was immensely successful, and the bulk of international members of Arm resided there. How is this so successful? It's amazing. I know I said earlier, don't underestimate the chariz- like the power of like the charismatic cult leader. But like, oh my god, they're recruiting people all around the world. 60,000 people. Even this is getting, it's a big stretch. This is Im immense. This was probably owing to the chaotic nature of post-Soviet Russia, enabling the purchase of millions of dollars worth of airtime as well as their own radio station. Arm um, also made donations to key Russian ministers and was able to buy a MiG-17 attack helicopter and smuggle it back to Japan, as well as parts and equipment required to manufacture AK-74 assault rifles, the modern version of the AK-47. Did we just brush over there that they bought an attack helicopter? What the f***? <laughs> Large cadres of our members were given firearms training, as well as specialized training by ex-Spetsnaz troops. But it seems that a bunch of mystics who joined a monastic order to retreat from the world aren't the best material for molding a crack special forces unit. But honestly, they've got so many people, they've probably got Japanese special forces as well in there, as long with ex-Spetsnaz people. Which is like, that's like Russia's elite soldiers, right? Ulm also set up branch offices in the US and Europe, but these only attracted a handful of members. Possibly most bizarrely, they bought a massive cattle station in Western Australia, intending to mine uranium, either to make a nuclear weapon or a dirty bomb. They had $30,000 in excess baggage when they arrived at Perth Airport, including lab equipment and glass carboys of hydrochloric acid labelled hand soap. Confused authorities fined them $2,400 for carrying dangerous goods and confiscated the acid. All members stayed at the station for about nine weeks before leaving and were denied a visa when they tried to return. It's like, I'm trying to get back to my cattle ranch. And what's the purpose of your Drenuka? Cattle. Cattle. <laughs> Eventually, the state government forced them to sell the land. Australian security agencies did flag this incident up to US and Japanese counterparts, but with no discernible effect. It was this little excursion that fueled Harry Mason's conspiracy theories, many of which made it into otherwise factual accounts of Om Shinriku. Yeah, so they want they bought a bunch of lands in Australia thinking they could mine nuclear materials there, and they didn't succeed. It's quite a way to go, Harry, isn't it, to say that they were testing nuclear bombs. I mean, yeah, getting uranium out of the ground, not impossible. Building a bomb from uranium? It's really hard. It's really, really, really hard. Really, the main event with Om was its chemical weapons program, but it's also worth looking briefly at their attempt to make bioweapons. Chemical weapons are probably the easiest one to make, right, if you're an aspiring terrorist. Like, I guess the order would be chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons. Is there a fourth, third or fourth category? Because even if you're making a dirty bomb, that's 
really you know you've got to really work out where to get like waste nuclear material from and stuff which is going to be really hard chemical weapon uh biological weapons i guess you've got to know how to like you've got to know something about that right chemical weapons not so much i think that's quite easy and then obviously conventional weapons the easiest of all like bombs made from um what fertilizer and diesel wasn't that what the guy who blew up that building in the u.s was um the oklahoma city bombing that was like fertilizer and shit and now it's like you buy fertilizer like lots of fertilizer you begin in a visit <laughs> unless you're a farmer or some shit, then it's okay during the meeting to plan sakamato sans murder ashara had asked what the most potent toxin was marai said it was botulinum the same pathogen used in botox and which in slightly larger doses does shut down the nervous system yeah botulinum the stuff people inject in their faces to make themselves look younger is one of the most is the most deadly toxin in the world since they didn't have any sakamoto san was killed by other means but that sparked the notion of making some themselves in the spring of 1990 endo went to a place in hokkaido prefecture to harvest sea botulinum from the soil Om ran a hospital and could have easily bought some cultures openly but paranoia prevented them from doing this endo then began a long and fruitless project to manufacture first botulinum and then anthrax they made huge amounts of what's called medium the fermented substance which carries the bacteria starting with square fermenters they made batches which weren't potent probably because square objects are harder to decontaminate they then moved on to barrel shaped designs a logical innovation but this also failed these efforts were significantly hampered by the constant lawsuits suits alms sizable land holdings and extortionate practices were exposing them to and only key members who could be trusted with anything this sensitive and there simply weren't enough of them to deal with lawsuits and engineer bioweapons at the same time okay so they've got a lot of members but the inner circle's fairly small um okay there was also the fact that they were strict buddhists and therefore prohibited themselves from testing weapons on animals killing people was fine but animal testing was apparently a big bridge too far <laughs> all right i'm like i don't like animal testing i'm not into animal testing i don't I, I think obviously if we didn't have to do animal testing on things i'd rather live in a world without it but do i think it is better than human testing yes yes i mean unless it's late stage where the humans can consent but we're talking about unconsenting humans here Ooh, consenting animals unconsenting animals or consenting humans that's a more interesting moral quandary isn't it fortunately this isn't the channel as i mentioned before where we solve moral quandaries it's the channel where we move on from them this meant they never knew until an actual attack was conducted whether their bioweapons were potent despite buying multiple complex facilities and producing thousands of liters of medium no single viable bioweapon was ever produced all right so they've tried nuclear in australia they've tried biological they're going to move on to chemical between march and july of 1990 om conducted around 30 separate botulinum attacks including on two usn bases the japanese diet the crown prince's wedding and a major airport none of which were even noticed as they totally failed in october three om members were arrested on unrelated charges and the whole program was shut down and disassembled in a fit of paranoia it was started again a couple of years later this time to produce anthrax it seems as if the strain of anthrax they used for seed was stolen from a university lab that should not be possible you shouldn't be letting people get anthrax it's extremely scary there are two types of anthrax culture used for the making of anthrax vaccines each of these contains one of two plasmids needed for a weaponizable product only the first kind of culture was obtained with endo assuring everyone he could replicate the seconds this attempt failed as well possibly because well endo was a virologist and not a bacteriologist you think yeah only scientists doing the same thing they would know about this it's like no 
if you're a virologist you're extremely specialized in viruses you're probably like i don't pay attention to bacteria because i don't need my mind being filled with that nonsense when i'm on viruses right once again they only discovered their anthrax didn't work when they used it in a series of attacks one random spraying of 20 tons in the immediate vicinity of one of their factories one targeted attack on a rival cult and 20 separate attempts to disperse it from modified trucks in and around tokyo the factory release resulted in residents reporting foul smells a sign that the medium had been contaminated and in another fit of paranoia they shut it all down again the fact that endo was quite senior in the hierarchy meant that even with his unbroken record of failure the bioweapons program was consistently prioritized if this hadn't been the case it's possible that the far more successful chemical weapons project run by mirai might have gone a bit further than it did mirai's chemical program Unon's chemicals was initially focused on drugs. One of Marai's chief assistants was a skilled chemist named Chuchia Masami, who worked for Endo and Marai alternatively. Chuchia began initially producing drugs in a small lab at Olm HQ. Some of these were sold through Yakuza contracts, who were also helping Olm manage its property portfolio. That's. Who are we going to have manage our property? A property manager? No, 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 let's have the Yakuza do it. That sounds smart. But the quality doesn't seem to have been very good, with one police informant describing Alm's drugs as garbage. He's like in the back room. This cocaine is rubbish! It's good I tried it, though. <laughs> He's the guy who tests all the cocaine. Alm was mostly producing LSD and methamphetamine, the amphetamines for sale, and the LSD for brainwashing recalcitrant members, as well as for recreational and ritual use. After returning from a trip to Russia, Marai told Tushia that Alm was under threat of chemical attack. It's unclear why. He told Tushia to research chemical weapons and find the best ones, so he dutifully went off to the university library and came back with the answer that sarin was probably the most cost effective. Marai then told him to make some for analysis so the cult could defend itself against an attack but Tushia made about 15 grams sourcing the precursors and equipment on the open market as he didn't think he was doing anything illegal once Marai found the sarin could be made he was ordered to make 70 tons Tushia bolted at this he was a research scientist not a manufacturer and he didn't know how to scale for the mass production Marai assured him a blank check and told him to get cracking on promptly built a facility called satyan 7 they called all their facilities satyans the term deriving from a sanskrit word for truth satyan 7 was a large sophisticated chemical manufactory fully decked out and suspiciously similar in layouts to russian built chemical weapons facilities the estimated cost of satyan 7 was about 30 million dollars whoa whoa while it was being built, Marai ordered Chia to make one kilogram of sarin. He was able to create a total of three kilograms with a purity of 90%. Chia claims he doesn't know what it was used for, but it's clear it was used in two failed attacks on the leader of a rival religious organization. The first was hand-delivered and ineffectual. On the second try, they decided to use a truck to disperse the chemical. Sarin is not a gas, regardless of how many times the media calls it that. It's clear liquid, colorless and odorless when properly made, which has a boiling point of about 140 celsius and a very low evaporation point converting it into a gas can be done but it's much more effective as a vapor so atomizers tend to be used in their first truck-borne attack marai devised a sort of butane-fired brazier sitting in the trailer his subordinates warned him that the truck would catch fire but he ignored them on the day of the attack the truck did catch fire and the driver had to be injected with atropine to save his life the incident finally persuaded arm to focus on chemical weapons and large-scale production of sarin and other nerve agents became their top priority at that point if i was that chemist then it'd be like yeah yeah we're having this to defend against attacks 
I'll just be like, so why aren't you making me make atropine? <laughs> this guy knows what's up. He's gonna, he's gonna go to prison, surely. Chemical Heart. With Satya and Seven in full swing, Arm began producing VX and Sarin in large quantities, as well as small amounts of Taben. Without going into too much chemistry detail, these three nerve agents are in the same family. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Same family of death. Produced with similar organophosphate chemistry, which was first developed by the Nazis in World War II. VX was the agent used to assassinate Kim Jong-un's brother, Kim Jong-nam, and has similar effects. Between 1992 and 1995, multiple attacks were conducted by OM. Some of these were individualized, being phosgene gas, sarin, and VX attacks on defecting members, anti-OM activists and journalists, as well as religious rivals. As far as anyone can make out, there were about seven of these chemical attacks, four of which were either wholly or partially successful. What's incredible about all of this is that they kept getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, if it would be more incredible, I wasn't already super used to it. Because all throughout this episode, it's been like, no one's doing anything. No one seems to care. Their target profile, the fact that they'd openly purchased precursors, and the fact that they had several large, sophisticated chemical manufacturers, Ashahara's near constant preaching about chemical warfare and actual hymns about sarin, all of this should have made it abundantly clear to the police that Alm was behind these crimes. Police were hampered, though, by the law and an institutional unwillingness to interfere with religions. Yeah, but this isn't, it's a cult. It's a crazy cult. I suspect another factor was the generally compliant nature of Japanese society. Japan has some of the lowest crime rates in the world, and it seems the police just weren't equipped to deal with criminality on this scale. In any event, Arm went on merrily settling scores and fulfilling boyish supervillain fantasies until June the 27th, 1994. Around this time, Arm had been involved in commercial litigation, and Asahara, assessing the judges in the case would find against them, ordered their killings. The judges all happened to live in a swanky neighborhood in Matsumoto near Nagano, so the core Aum members got to work. Having learned their lesson from setting their truck on fire in the first attack, engineers got to work designing a sophisticated fan-driven vaporizer to be installed in the back of a newly modified truck. In the early evening, they parked 37 meters west of the judges' residences and fired her up. Initially, the vapor was released into the truck. <laughs> Into the truck itself. After some frantic adjustments, they were able to get it to disperse outside, but a slight breeze pushed the vape cloud off target and into the neighboring apartment complexes. Eight innocent people were killed and 200 were injured. After about 10 minutes, the armed squad aborted and went home. It's just endless incompetence. And again, I'll say, didn't you have enough people in your cult with, like, even if you're not telling them, even if they're not in the inner circle, that you could at least ask, like, yeah, yeah, we're thinking about doing something like, you know, Totally unrelated to horrible terrorism crimes. Can you tell me how this works? You know? Police warned the neighborhood and began an intensive investigation directed in exactly the wrong direction. They found traces of herbicides in the home of one of the victims, who happened to be a chemical salesman, and concluded that he had conducted the attack either as revenge for a neighborhood dispute or some obscure insurance scam. Despite all the multiple indications over several years that Ulm might be conducting chemical attacks, police completely ignored the cult as well as eyewitness reports of a random truck spewing out particulates nearby. Police in Japan 
what are you up to? The very next month, while the police investigation was ongoing and the chemical salesman's life was being ruined, Ahmed's an accidental release of impure sarin from its Mount Fuji compound, causing neighbors to complain of a foul odor. This was the same impurity, a coppery brown byproduct of manufacture, which caused the odors at the Tokyo subway attack. Later that year, a more serious accidental release occurred at Satyan 7, and Ashihara ordered all weapons programs shut down. Satyan 7 itself was covered in plastic sheeting and decorated like a temple in a pathetic event to disguise its function. Despite the cleanup, is there really anything to worry about, though? The police seem to just not care. It's not their religion. They're uh, immune to law. Despite the cleanup taking three months and police investigating the spills, finding MPA, a chemical associated with sarin breakdown, and IMPA, which is associated with sarin production in the soil around Satyan 7, no action was taken, because of course it wasn't. And somehow they couldn't connect the evidence of sarin production with the multiple chemical attacks and strong indications of arm involvement. And they couldn't. And given they couldn't link the production to a specific assault or murder, they couldn't prosecute, as there was no law in Japan against producing poisonous chemicals. They'd simply never needed one in the past. Are you joking? That's how you... It's like, if something is clearly wrong, and it just happens to not be a crime because the crime isn't miss it, written, find some other way. Find some, like, wide-reaching crime and use that instead. The police weren't completely idle, however. It's kind of a surprise to me. One of Alm's more routine activities was the kidnapping and intimidation of critics. It's a good indication of how nuts their activities were that multiple abductions fall into a side category. Anyway, they'd finally managed to get some fingerprint evidence linking an Alm member to one of these kidnappings and were planning to raid Alm's facilities on the 22nd of March 1995. Brilliant! Finally, something's happening! Arm sympathizers in the police force warned them of the raid, of course they did. So Ashihara and his brain trust started planning a sarin attack on the Tokyo subway, focusing on trains converging on Kasumigeski rail station right near the Metropolitan Police headquarters. The twin goals of this attack were to distract the police from the raid and to trigger Armageddon, <laughs> and also to facilitate Arm's seizure of state control. Guys, you're getting too big for your breaches. This isn't going to happen. Since the two accidental spills, all our members have been banned from chemical and biological weapons production, so Toshio was busy producing mescaline at the time. Of course he was. He received orders to quickly make more sarin and was given some precursor that had been hidden for a rainy day. Sashia got to work, but he found he lacked the appropriate organic precursor and substituted a brown liquid known as DEA, which caused the originally colorless sarin to have a distinctive brown color as well as an odor. Some reports state Shia had invented a new supercharged sarin production method, but this simply isn't true. It was a substitution method which produced a product of lower purity and efficacy, about 35% pure. Five arm members with 11 polythene bags of sarin wrapped in newspaper boarded trains hid the packages somewhere in the carriages and pierced them with umbrella tips. Eight of these bags were successfully punctured, and other three were found intact. Overall, the Tokyo subway incident killed 13 people and injured 6,252, many of them permanently. Wrap up. The Tokyo subway attack left a scar on the Japanese psyche which persists to this day. It was a hugely traumatic event which brought about multiple changes in the law and also in Japanese attitudes to religion. 
Good. Ulm was used as one of the reasons for remilitarizing Japan. Oh, <laughs> less good. And authorities to this day will refuse basic state services to Ulm members, most of whom had no idea what was going on. Just before the attack, Ashihara had organized a firebombing of an Ulm facility, a sort of Reichstag fire to garner public sympathy, but it didn't work. If anything, it hastened his demise, as it was one of the key incidents which led police to his door. About a month after the subway attack, Ulm tried again, this time with Zyklon B, cyanide gas, but the attempt was abandoned before the dispersers were properly set up. The police finally sprang into action, and by September, <laughs> it, only, it only took chemical attacks. It only took the use of a weapon of mass destruction. And by September of 1995, they had conducted 500 raids on 300 locations, logging 66,000 items of evidence and arresting 398 Ulm members. Ten days after the attack, an Ulm assassin shot the police commissioner several times, seriously wounding him before escaping on a bicycle. With typical arm incompetence, he used a Colt 38 revolver at 60 yards, outside the maximum effective range. But with typically equal arm luck, the attack was still partially successful. One month after the attack, Marai Hideo was stabbed to death by Yo Hiroyuki, a Yakuza member who later committed suicide in prison. On May the 5th, Arm tried Zyklon B again, this time in Shinjuku Station, with a simple binary dispersal method, which thankfully was interrupted by a member of the public. On the day Ashihara was arrested, May the 16th, Arm mailed a letter bomb to the governor of Tokyo, which blew the fingers off his secretary's left hand. Another Zyklon B attempt on the 4th of July also failed, this time because the devices were shoddily made and just didn't work. When Ashihara was finally brought to trial, he used every trick in the book. He pled incompetence, mobilized his publicists in the media, sacked his lawyer the day before the trial, but all to no avail. I know how this ends, and it's a good one. He was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging, as were several of his key associates. Ashara Shoku was hanged on July the 6th, 2018. Seven other members, including Endo the bioweapons guy, the two sugar guy the chemist, they were also executed that week. Yeah, oh my god, it took them a long time. From 1995 to 2018, 23 years to get that execution done. And I thought death row in America was long, Jesus. Dismembered of Endices. And yes, that, that was the good ending I was talking about. Dismembered of Endices. There are quite a few key players in this drama. Nimi the Strangler, Nakagawa, Hayakawa, the Bodyguard, and many others. I haven't named them for a few reasons. Firstly, because Ashihara was the prime mover. Secondly, because they're not as important as the victims. And thirdly, to avoid confusion and the need for human network charts and diagrams. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say I found this very easy to follow and I've covered this story before. And there were a lot of names that I kind of got track, so, lost track, so that's kind of you, Chris. Thank you. Number two, Aum Shinriku broke into several different groups after the subway attack. The biggest is called Aleph, which seems to spend most of its time distancing itself from Ashihara Shoko's ideas and actions. When I reached out to them, I got a form letter saying they had nothing to do with any sarin and asking if I wanted some meditation videos. <laughs> <laughs> nice one for reaching out to them, Chris, and uh, let me know how those meditation videos work out. Number three, Ishii Hasako, Ashihara's mistress, was released from prison in 2000 and renounced all connection with Om. She had been jailed for damaging a corpse as well as providing cash and a vehicle to Om members the day after the attack. I feel sorry for her. She was, like, locked in that room for, like, seven weeks and beaten. Like, she was... Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like she's a victim in this. Number four, in the immediate wake of the attacks... Fumi Hiro Joyu, Alm's PR head, became the de facto leader. He argued strenuously for Alm's innocence and weirdly became something of a teen heartthrob for a while. 
Wait, what? He was jailed for three years for inciting perjury before breaking away to form his own arm splinter group, Hikari Noir, the Ring of Light. Number five. Just after the 1995 subway attack, Japan's domestic intelligence agency turned a lady called Kitagawa, who had joined Alm after the attack. She apparently sold information to the agency for some years before defecting to North Korea. Okay. She claimed that the intelligence agent, who was a handler, had forced her to have sex with him on more than 20 occasions, which was a big part of the reason for her defecting. As for choosing North Korea, friends said had always been fascinated by the regime and had a lifelong dream of living there. You like people are. Fa I'm fascinated by North. Career. It's super interesting. Do I want to live there? Absolutely not. No. Good lord, no. I've also said things about North Korea that would get me killed there. Number six. In the early 2000s, leaders of ARM finally acknowledged Ashahar and the cult's guilt. They issued formal apologies and set up a compensation and counseling fund for victims and their families. Because of the use of sarin, the attack attracted intense scrutiny from a whole range of security, intelligence, and law enforcement investigators from all over the world. It's their unanimous opinion that the vast bulk of ARM Shinriki members had no idea what the chiefs were up to. Yeah, I kind of share that opinion. It does seem unlikely. But that is where we end today's episode of The Casual Criminalist. I feel like the crime in this one was this tiny bit. I mean, all of there were loads of crimes, but like that, the actual attack was such a small part of this. It was all about that build-up, like Chris said at the beginning. Thank you, Chris, for this. Thank you, Jen, for editing it. Thank you, dear listener or viewer, for watching. If you were so kind to leave a review if you're listening as a podcast or a rating on Spotify, a comment, a like, a subscribe on YouTube, that'd be wonderful. And I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.